Have you ever had to get a second opinion? We've all been there, right? You know, whether it's uh, something serious like a medical issue or maybe something a little less, just like how, how am I going to work through this problem or this situation? I just want another person's advice on how I ought to deal with this. We've, we've all had times in life where we've wanted a second opinion on something. And, you know, sometimes we treat Jesus as if he's just one of those opinions, you know. We'll go to him, maybe... Uh, Somebody's been really mean to us, really nasty to us. We go, okay, Jesus, what do you think we should do? What do I think? What do you think I should do here? And we know his words. Okay, don't repeat, repay evil with evil, but repay evil with kindness. So, all right, well, that sounds kind of hard. You know, that's one opinion. Uh, Clint Eastwood, what do you think? You know, and, and so, you know, sometimes we're just not comfortable with what the Bible says. We know it, but we want another opinion. We are uh, continuing to talk about a topic where really we'd like another opinion on it. It's the topic of suffering. And as you go throughout the New Testament, it's a continued theme where it's not just Peter talking about suffering. Jesus talked about preparing the church for suffering. And, and Paul would talk about suffering. And John will talk about suffering. You see it over and over again in the New Testament, the, uh, God preparing his church to suffer. And sometimes when we think about suffering, we think, you know, can I just get another opinion on that? You know, God, is there another way? Can we kind of do this another way so we don't have to go through the pain, the heartache, the difficulty? Because nobody really wants suffering, but that's, that's where we're at. And as we just kind of a reminder of where we've been in First Peter and how we kind of get here where we will be today in First Peter 4, Peter begins his letter by telling the church who they are in Christ. And so, hey, here are the implications of your salvation. You are chosen by God, and here's what that means. And it's a glorious thing. But one of the things that it means is it means that you're rejected by the world. And so in chapter 2, he transitions to how do you live in an unjust world? How do you live with hostility? Because of your chosenness by God, it means you're rejected by the world. So how do you live in that rejection? And so he spends time talking about that. And this morning, we're really transitioning to the last segment of Peter's letter, and it's basically just instructions for the church. Okay, church, here's how you live, and where does Peter start? Well, he starts again with suffering. It's a continued theme, and it is one of those things where we look and say, ah, I wish I didn't have to go through that. Well, Peter writes how to suffer Christianly, what it looks like to suffer as a Christian. Let's check it out together this morning. First Peter chapter 4, Verses 12 through 19. First Peter 4, 12 through 19. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an, or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Did you catch how Peter begins this section? There's a tenderness to it, right? He says, beloved. He's, he's telling the church that you're loved. Now, he switches real quickly. He says, hey, beloved, don't be surprised when you have to endure the fiery trial, this test that's going to come upon you. 
But isn't it often that in those trials, in the suffering, in the difficulty, that that's when you question, am I really loved? You know, I mean, we even, we even sang it in the song, like, does the tr- Father truly love us, right? Does Jesus really hold fast to those who are his? And sometimes we question that and we doubt that because we go through painful times, difficult times, hard situations, and we tend to wonder, is, does he still, does he still love? Does he see what's going on? Have I not performed well enough? Is that why this is happening? And so we have all these questions that can sometimes race through our minds. And Peter is encouraging the church just in this opening word. Hey, you're beloved. You're loved by God. He doesn't miss anything. Now, he's already told us the context uh, of what's going to happen, right? He's, he's writing to the church. As we talked about last week. And he says, hey, church, you're not just approaching the end times. You're living in them. And as you're living in the end times, here's how you should live. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, love others, practice hospitality, you know, do all these things, and then you're doing good. Uh, and here's the context for it. Suffering, pain, hardship. It's going to be difficult. It's not always going to be easy, but just remember, you're loved. I don't miss anything. You're loved. And then comes the, uh, the difficult exhortation, really, because he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you face all this stuff. And isn't that the natural reaction for us? Like when something just hits us, it always feels like out of left field. Like, why? Why do I have to go through this? This is so hard. I didn't expect this. And it's amazing how just accurate the Bible is when you, when you read it, how true to life it is. Because haven't you, like me, like heard Christians say in the last, I don't know, three to four years, like, man, I just can't believe like the rise of transgenderism and what's taking place, the drag queen story times and the pornography and education and things like that. I just can't believe it. I, I never would have imagined 10 years ago that this would be today. Right? There's so much surprise. There's so much shock. We hear it all the time. And what's Peter said? Hey, don't be surprised when the world comes for you. Don't be shocked when you undergo uh, suffering and this type of thing. Don't let it knock you off. Don't let it knock you off your feet. Right? Don't, don't, let it make you question God's love for you and how you ought to live. Now listen, Peter himself was accustomed to surprise and shock at the talk of suffering, okay? It's not like he had mastered this, right? He grew in it himself. You remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he told his disciples, hey guys, uh, I got to go to Jerusalem. And when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. You remember what Peter did? He takes Peter, uh, takes Jesus aside, says, hey, Jesus, I need to have a word with you. And so, takes him aside and says, Jesus, just so you know, that's never going to happen to you. Never, Lord. It's never going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. It's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan. But you know, that's where Peter was. That's what he's thinking, right? See, here's what Satan wants to do. He wants to take your mind's attention and your heart's affection and shift it off of Jesus onto somewhere else, off onto something else. So he wants to take your mind's attention and shift it to the difficulty, to the pain, and make you focus right there. And that's what Peter does in the moment. He wants to take your heart's affection and move it from the comforter to just the depression and the worry and the anxiety. That's what Satan wants to do. That's what he's doing to Peter in that moment, Right? We, we face and we experience surprise differently when we're shocked by the suffering. Sometimes we can be like Peter, some of us, we just want to fix it, right? You know, hey, 
I'll be the instructor. I'll tell Jesus what's up. You know, instead of being the disciple who's a learner, no, no, I'm going to tell Jesus. And we can take that perspective and, and that attitude sometimes where we just want to fix it. Other times it can just completely neutralize us, right? We just like sink into a depression. And, oh man, it's just so, there's the heaviness that kind of takes over, right? We can react to it in a number of different ways, but when suffering hits us and it just surprises us, the, the thing that it often does is shifts our mind's attention and heart's affection onto something or someone else. And so Peter's saying, hey, don't be surprised. Continue to trust in the Lord, right? Continue to focus on Jesus. Make him the object of your mind's attention, your heart's affection, because you are loved. You are beloved. He hasn't lost track of you. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't, he's not, you know, he's not punishing you. No, no, no. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by it. Because in an upside down world, when you are chosen by God, it means oftentimes you're going to be rejected by the world. So don't let it rock your faith. Don't let it rock your hope, your joy, your love, your purpose. And you know who else God called beloved? His son, Jesus, right? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he allowed Jesus to go through the sufferings and pain that he went through for us. Right? Suffering is a part of life in an upside-down world. And Jesus himself said, hey, don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first. Right? Don't, don't be surprised by it. And one of the beauties of the Bible, and we've kind of made this point several times through First Peter, is the Bible doesn't just tell you, it's not just a list of don't, right? You say, hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't, don't be surprised, don't do that. You get the don't, right? It's for our good, but you always get the counter proposal, okay? You always get, here's what you do. So hey, don't be surprised. And you say, okay, Peter, yeah, but what do I do? How, how should I react then? And Peter tells us. He says, instead, rejoice. That, that's the other option. Just rejoice. And you're thinking, well, rejoice? This is suffering. This is difficulty. This is pain. This is how, how am I supposed to rejoice? And his encouragement is rejoice because your life is tied to Christ. And that reality, it ought to shape your mindset. It ought to be fundamental as, as it shapes your attitude and how you encounter persecution and suffering. Don't be surprised at the intensity of the trial, but instead rejoice that your life is tied with Christ. Um, Oftentimes, we can be surprised. And where surprise usually takes us next, when like we see suffering and craziness happening in our world and our society, we're surprised. Oh, I just can't believe it. I never would have imagined. And then we shift to resignation. Well, you know, this is just how life is. This is just how it is. I'm just kind of resigned to the fact. And what does that cause us to do? Disengage. And so then we go from surprise to resigned to basically neutralized, where you, you know, if I can just like keep quiet, if I don't mess with you, maybe you won't mess with me, we can all be good, right? Peter, he's effectively telling the church, listen, the Roman Empire is not just going to stop, right? The Roman Empire hates you. It wants to rid the world of Christianity. It's not just going to stop. It's going to keep coming after you. Listen, the spirit of Satan hates you. It's not just going to, the world's just not going to stop and say, okay, church, we can just keep you like silent in a corner you know, that'll be good enough. No, it's going to continue to attack God. 
his values, his people. That's just the reality. And so Peter, he's encouraging the church. No, no, you continue to engage. You, it's not that you pull back and you give up. No, 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 all the more. You take the goodness of Christ, the love of Christ, the joy of the Lord into every sphere of society, into every corner of culture. But suffering uh, for Jesus, it creates this special bond with Jesus. You know, then, then what happened? Well, now I just can't wait for his glory to appear. I can't wait for him to come. And you, you see that in this passage. What prepares you to suffer Christianly? How do you have that type of mindset? It's your attitude. It's your joy. It's who, and that brings us really to the ultimate question. Like, what do you ultimately rejoice in? And what do you ultimately rejoice in? Is it your, your kids, your grandkids, your friends? And hey, listen, kids, grandkids, friends, they're all gifts of the Lord, right? They're gifts of God. Maybe it's your work. Uh, listen, we were created for a purpose. That's a good thing. Maybe it's your hobbies. God gives the best fun. That's a good thing. But listen, if it's anything other than Jesus, if your ultimate joy is anything other than Jesus, it's ultimately a letdown. Because your, your friends, your kids, your spouse, whoever, they will let you down. They will. Your, uh, your job, your work, yeah, it's meaningful, it's valuable, it's purpose. But there's frustration with it, right? It's never just great all the time. And your hobbies, yeah, God gives the best fun. But if that's what you live life for, there's this law of diminishing returns. And you realize, well, this just isn't what I'm made for, though. There, there's more to life than this. Right? If it's not Jesus, ultimately, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a letdown. Peter's preparing the church that your ultimate joy is in Jesus. Because listen, if your joy is in Jesus, you'll take whatever arrows, you know? You'll go through whatever suffering, whatever hardship, uh, because he's who you joy in. And you know this is true, because look at your family, right? Someone messes with your family, and most of us, like, we'll stand up for our family, Right? It's like, hey, you start coming after my family, like, we're going to have problems. And whatever arrows come, whatever hardships come, whatever suffering I got to endure because my family's going through this, like, I will take it, right? Because I love and I rejoice in my family. When you love and rejoice in the Lord, it's the same idea. It's whatever arrows come, hey, bring it on because I, I rejoice in Jesus. Listen, when Jesus just becomes a program, okay, it's like, okay, you know, I got to knock on doors. I got to ask these two questions. Uh, I, I know I got to go and share the gospel. I got to do these things. When it becomes that, I have to, or this is my duty, or this is just a simple obligation. And, and you do it out of guilt or out of shame or, or maybe out of performance. You just want them to be pleased, whatever. Then when the rubber meets the road and it really becomes hard and the suffering starts to come in, you know what, the, you know what we do? Man, I, I didn't realize I was signed up for all this. Yeah, I thought a relationship with Jesus was just going to be nice and smooth and easy. You know, wasn't it just like gumdrops and rainbows and stuff? No. The Bible prepares us over and over again that walking faithfully with the Lord invites suffering. You're only prepared for the suffering when you rejoice in Jesus. When he's not just this program that you implement, but he's a person that you imitate. And there's a relationship with him and, then you, and you love him and you rejoice in him. That's why Christians, I mean, people walking faithfully with the Lord, they're the most optimistic people on the planet. There's such joy. There's like this magnetism about them because you can see that a relationship with Jesus transforms their, transforms their lives, their attitude, everything. 
And Peter's preparing the early church for that so that they will take the arrows. They will, they will experience the suffering and keep on bringing the goodness of Christ into every sphere of society, every corner of culture. And so the encouragement is rejoice in your relationship with Jesus. Rejoice in your relationship with Christ. Now, because of your relationship with Christ, you're going to experience suffering. But Peter says... You can rejoice in your suffering insofar as those sufferings are connected to your affiliation with Jesus, right? It's not like a carte blanche statement for all suffering you'll ever face. If you experience suffering, hardship, pain, difficulty, because you made really poor choices in life, that's not like unjust suffering. That's just consequences for sin, right? And there's, so there's a difference. And so Peter says, hey, church, if you experience suffering because you're a murderer, you're a thief, you're an evildoer, you're a meddler, you're all these different things, like, don't look at that and say, oh, man, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, no, no. You're, you're suffering because you made poor choices, all right? And so there, and, and there's no joy in that. That's just experiencing justice. No, but there is joy, Peter says, when you're suffering on account of your relationship with Christ. And, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. In our mind, we, we have like this upside-down idea sometimes of blessing and suffering. Oftentimes in the American church, like blessing and suffering, they don't go together, right? If I'm suffering, it means I'm not blessed. It means, it means like God's upset with me, I've done something wrong, maybe he doesn't love me as much, like something's going on if I'm suffering. What you see in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, is that blessing by God in an upside-down world invites suffering. Because the world rejected Christ, it also rejects those who are his. And so being blessed by God oftentimes in this world means you do experience suffering. And Peter says that, hey, when you experience that suffering because of your affiliation with Jesus, because you're walking faithfully with him, you can rejoice in that. It's a a good thing. Um, He then kind of talks about the different types of, of suffering that we sometimes face uh, because of our relationship with Jesus. And the first one he mentions is insults. Now, when we think of insults, we think of like mean names people might call us and, and say about us. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. That can, that can definitely affect our, our mentality and our emotions and things like that. And words do hurt. But understand that this is not just an insult that you can just kind of brush off and kind of move away from. In, in this society, when they hear insult, they hear it on a deeper level than we tend to hear it, okay? This is first century Mediterranean society. It was very much an honor-shame culture. And so when you insult someone, you're shaming them. You are lowering their social status, all right? There's now a label on you. You are less in community. It, it affects your relationships with people. That's, that's what this term is getting at, all right? It's, it's, it's typically bigger than we typically think of it. Uh, but this type of insult, when it brings shame and, re, and results in a loss of social standing, it's why Peter will say uh, just a couple of verses later, hey, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. He's preparing the church to live Christianly uh, because of the suffering that they're going to experience as a result of their relationship with Jesus. And what he's saying is, rather than taking the insult personally, rather than trying to reclimb 
the social ladder or maintain all the community relationships. Uh, rather than all that, you continue just to trust in God. Recognize that you are suffering because you are blessed. So continue to rejoice. You know, don't insult them back. Don't try to tear them down. No. Be excited about your identification. And we look at that and say, wow, I don't know how to do that. I mean, you're costing. The cost is so much. And how do I continue to rejoice? Well, Peter answers that too. He says, you're rejoicing because the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of glory, he rests on you. That is, you're blessed by God and empowered by God to do things that you can't do in and of yourself. Because in the natural, in the flesh, we respond, we react, we have a hard time, we we push up against this type of thing. But in the supernatural, empowered by the Spirit, empowered by God, what happened? Now, Now we're able to take some of this and say, okay, God, I continue to rejoice. They're they're insulting me just like they insulted you. I'm experiencing suffering just like you experience suffering. There's, there's a blessing here. There's a goodness to this. And you can only do it when you're walking in step with the Spirit. And when you walk in step with the Spirit and you live a life of joy for, for the, in the Lord, there is suffering. It's not like a maybe. So, well, you know, you might, you might experience some. And throughout the New Testament, you, see, you, know, you, you will experience suffering precisely because of your relationship with Jesus and how you live in that relationship with him. Now, none of us like the idea of suffering, uh, but it's incredible how powerful it can be when you do suffer Christianly. C.S. Lewis, a great theologian of yesteryear, his writings, they always make you think, Uh, he wrote this about suffering. He put it this way. Uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Isn't that true? That, you know, when you celebrate Christianly, some way, oh, that's cool. But when you suffer Christianly, it gets people's attention. How do you continue to have joy? How do you continue to have hope? It doesn't mean that you're not honest about the, the hurts and the pains that you're experiencing. It's not, it's not that they just magically go away. No, but there's still joy somehow with it. There's still hope surrounding it. You still operate in love. There, there's, there's still something about you. You're tr- it's incredible. Right? Because you don't act the way the world acts. You don't just go into a depression. You don't just complain. You're not just overcome by worry or fear. There is something about someone who suffers Christianly that the world just doesn't know. They don't have a box for that. They, 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 they don't know how that fits. But understand, it is the key that you suffer Christianly because of your affiliation with Christ. And there is the suffering for doing good, but there's also the suffering that Peter talks about for not doing good. And so it, it raises this question that sometimes we, we wrestle with as believers, and that is, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Why is it that, you know, you can have a faithful family, there's like a poor, innocent child, and they experience something horrific, or, uh, you know, you just see good people, and it seems like, man, it's not fair they have to go through all this. All the, you know, medical situation or some kind of other things, horrific, it's just terrible. Like, why? 
And then you can look and you can say, man, there's this like drug dealer pushing fentanyl or whatever, or man, here's someone who's just abusing their power and stepping on those who are beneath them just to you know, gain even more wealth. And we look at these people and say, man, they've got more money than like we would make in like 20 lifetimes. Like, how is this right? How is this fair? So sometimes we wrestle with this question. And Peter's saying, listen, if you don't see how it all works out in this world, understand that judgment begins with the household of God, but it's going to extend to those outside the household of God right? There is a justice that's coming for everyone. And when you look at our justice, okay, it begins with the household of God. Well, what's our defense when, when God's judgment comes? Our only defense is Jesus, right? There's nothing else. I can't point to my works, my performance, my attitude. I got nothing. The only thing I can point to is that I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. And because I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ, the banner that flies over me is no condemnation right? That's the truth for the church. But if you don't have that, you got nothing to point to, right? There is no defense. I can't point to my works and they're not even good. Uh, I can't point to my attitude. I can't point to anything. And so you're utterly cut off from Christ. And Peter, he underscores this with a quote from Proverbs 11, uh, where it says, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, if the righteous can scarcely be saved, what will become of the sinner? And so the author of Proverbs, he's, he's, he's forecasting what it takes for God to save his people. And when you think of what it takes for God to save us, it's incredible, really, isn't it? God the Father had to send God the Son to earth for us. He had to leave the comforts of heaven and come to the confines of earth. He had to give up being treated like God in order to be treated like a criminal. He had to have placed upon him all of the sin of humanity and die a miserable, horrible death on a cross and be buried. But what's more is he was raised from the dead. And now to be saved, what happens? Well, by God's grace, through faith, we're able to trust in Christ alone so that we can be covered in his righteousness. And all the glory of that, well, it goes to God alone, not us. And so our only defense is Jesus. But if we can scarcely be saved, like if it had to go through all that in order for us to be saved, those who don't believe by faith in God's grace, they have no defense. What will become of that? I mean, it's a terrible, horrific thought. And Peter just leaves it open-ended. And what he's doing is he's inviting the church to recognize, listen, there will be justice. God is a just God. He's a patient God. He's a loving God. He, he wants all to come to himself. Yes, absolutely. But you can also trust that he is a just God. So how do you live now? Well, you keep doing good. You, you keep rejoicing. You keep trusting that God is at work, even when you can't make sense of it. Even when things really are upside down. He said, man, this world is upside down. It's so backwards. As you walk with Christ, you see more and more the upside downness of the world. You see more and more the brokenness that we sang, sang about and the backwardness of it all. But you trust. You continue to trust that God is working. Philip Yancey, in his book, Where is God When It Hurts?, he compared uh, death and pain 
to basically being born. And he kind of asks his readers just to imagine if you could, if you had memories of what it was like, like living in your mother's womb and going through that birthing process, just imagine that. And then he compared it to to death and pain. I, w- I want to read to you this this section. Uh, he he wrote, "Your world is dark, safe, secure. You are bathed in a warm, cushioning liquid. You do nothing for yourself. You are fed automatically, and a murmuring heartbeat assures you that someone larger than you is meeting all your needs. Life consists of simple waiting. You're not sure what to wait for, but any change seems far away and scary." You encounter no sharp objects, no pain, no dangers, a fine, serene existence. One day you feel a tug. The walls seem to press in. Those soft, padded walls are now pulsing wildly, crushing you downward. Your body is bent double, your limbs twisted and wrenched. You're falling upside down. For the first time in your life, you feel pain. You're in a sea of roiling matter. There's more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head is squeezed flat and you are pushed harder, harder into a dark tunnel. Oh, the pain, noise, more pressure. You hurt all over. You hear a groaning sound and an awful sudden fear rushes in on you. It is happening. Your world is collapsing. You're sure this is the end. You see a piercing, blinding light. Cold, rough hands grasp at you, pull you from the tunnel and hold you upside down. A a painful slap. Ah, There's crying. Congratulations, you've just been born. Death is like that, he writes. On this end of the birth canal, it seems scary. Dark tunnel as we are being sucked toward by an irresistible force. None of us looks forward to it. We're afraid. It's full of pressure, pain, darkness, the unknown. But beyond the darkness and the pain lies a whole new world outside. When we awaken after death and brought into the light of a new world, our tears, our hurts will be nevermore. See, we can't always make sense of the pain in this life. This world is upside down, and we can't always make sense of it. But the hope that we have in Jesus is that there is another world coming when there is no more pain, there is no more hurt, there is no more tears, where he makes all things right. And so in this world, how do we live? Well, we don't live surprised, resigned, neutralized, No, we continue to live with joy because we have an inside scoop of what's coming. We're told what's coming. Peter says it like this. He says, uh, hey, rejoice in the creator God. You know, trust in the creator God, uh, the faithful creator. It's the only time in the New Testament that that title is used of God, faithful creator, only time. And I think it's really an important time, really, because think about it. He's writing to prepare the church for suffering. And And he's just kind of reminding them here, Hey, listen, God who created the whole universe, who controls it, who sustains it, who has it all, he created you, and he's got you too. Just like he named all the trillions of stars, he's got all the trillions of stars, he never loses one, he's not going to lose you either. You're never beyond his sight, you're never out of his mind, you're never beyond his control, he's got you. So that's the encouragement, continue to trust in the creator, God. Now, Jesus himself would, would say, right, to his audience at the Sermon on the Mount, hey, look at the lilies of the field, look at the, look at the grass of the field, look at the birds of the air. Do I, do I not clothe them? Do I not feed them? Do I take care of them? How much more are I going to take care of you? I love you. So there's this comfort that, yeah, the world is upside down, but I've got you. I'm in control. And that's the hope of the church. Peter's writing to prepare believers for suffering. 
so that we would suffer Christianly because of our affiliation with Jesus. And he uses this term creator in a sense so that we would take our eyes off of our suffering and just fix our eyes on God who is creator, who holds everything together, who's got us. Now, listen, as believers, we're not known by our suffering, right? That's not how we're known. We're known by our love. And because of that love, there's joy, there's hope, there's worship, even when we suffer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you're always honest with us. God, that you tell us the truth in your words, that as we study about you with Bible open and how life is to be lived, God, you don't hide the fact from us that there is suffering in this world. Now, sometimes we like a second opinion on that. We'd like to ignore that. We'd like to, to live in a world without that, and that world is coming. But God, in an upside-down world, there is suffering. But God, you empower your church to, even in the midst of suffering, live with joy, hope, love, worship, because we're empowered by your Spirit. God, help us to be that type of church who, no matter what happens, we bring the goodness of Jesus into every sphere of society, every corner of culture. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.